Today I welcome Lee Haag, Head of School at Greenhill School in the USA. In this episode, I discuss the divisive nature of social media and the role teachers and schools play in supporting our students, the challenge of creating new school values, and life after COVID, can and will education be different? We've heard that students who go all the way through life at school are called lifers. However, you go beyond the lifer. You mentioned that you were a student at Darlington in Georgia and held leadership positions at several leading schools before you came to Greenhill. How have those experiences shaped you as a person and as a leader? You could say they've warped me more than shaped me. I mean, I, I've never not been on a student schedule in my entire life. Those experiences have created who I am. I mean, as I said, I've lived my life in schools. I started my professional career in boarding schools. So five years at Darlington, which is a day in boarding school, and then at Choate, which is another day in boarding school. And they're intensely immersive experiences. And as a young person who was learning how to teach, learning how to be an administrator, those schools, those opportunities shaped my thinking about how to work with students, how to work with parents, how to work with colleagues immensely. Those things have been honed and refined, you know, for the last three decades. When with a brief furlough in, in Charlottesville to work on a doctorate, like I've literally never not been in a school in my life. I've just found it to be an incredibly rewarding, fun, engaging life. And did you think you were always going to become a, a head teacher at the end of it when you first started teaching? Or, or did it suddenly come to you at one point that you just fell into it because that was just the only path to follow? It didn't fall into it. As a matter of fact, I remember, you know, so I mentioned uh, my old head of school, his name is Brad Joya, and he went on to be the head at Montgomery Bell Academy, a great school in Nashville. And he's been there for decades. You know, I, I admired Brad a lot. And as a student, when I was at Darlington, and then, you know, as his employee, we were very close. I remember thinking, you know, that's, that looks like a great job. Like it looks like a really fun job to be able to intentionally shape a community and, and to really put your stamp on an institution. And to help it grow and expand and evolve. So I did. I realized that early on. It was in my first year back at school in 93. And so since that point, I mean, it's been sort of a twisty path, as I said, but you know, that's been a goal that I've been working toward for a long time. So it's been intentional. It hasn't always been direct, but it's been intentional. And do you find that the calls of being a head teacher get you maybe too far away from the teaching side and the, the shaping because you're caught up in bureaucracy and HR and in other kind of policy issues that probably weren't on the job description when you thought, actually, do you know what? I'm going to lead a school. It feels great. But then you leave behind. Have you found that juggle easy and that transition easy to deal with non-teaching? It's not easy, Simon. As a matter of fact, the way I put it is I'm as far away from what I started to do in this job that I have ever been in my life. And that is, you know, working directly with students. And that's something I lament. It's also part of the structure of the schools that I've been in for a long time. I've been in K-12 day schools for the past 20 years. And each of them has been pretty big, you know, over 1,500 students. Or we're about 1,340, 1,350 here at Greenhill. So still a pretty big school. And so part of it is just the complexity of the organization, right? 300 employees, 800 families, 1,400 children. You know, that's a lot. And uh, it's a lot to manage. And it's a, you know, we've got a big leadership team here, a very talented leadership team, but that's part of it. Uh, I don't think that you realize, you know, the way I put it to a friend of mine who's also head of school is it feels like Gulliver tied down on the beach in Lilliput, you know, with all these people running all over you. You get into it. I think the thing that has been a sort of a surprise to me is you get into being a head of school and you think that you're going to be free to make sweeping, bold decisions. 
And that's not really the case a lot of the time. There are a lot of people you have to convince before you make those big, bold decisions. So there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it's not maybe front of mind when you get into the job. And that's something that I've had to get used to. Just sort of parallels to me, you know, when I sort of started working for myself 15 years ago, because I wanted to be around my family as they grew, I kind of woke up at sort of about five years ago and went, wow, I've got a global business that's doing all this stuff, but I'm so far away from actually the bit that I enjoy the most, which is the innovation, the constant change, the creativity, because we become administrators. And that was, again, wasn't something I signed up to, even though, you know, it's something I created. It wasn't something... I'm also not natural at it, but I'm kind of doing it. And so what I found is bringing in great people that I can surround myself with who can actually get on and do that to release me to go off and do the bits I enjoy while still shape strategy and vision. Have you found that as a, as a good process in schools, surrounding yourself with really good kind of leadership, assistant head teachers and the like? Yeah, I and mean, that's essential. The balance that I look at in terms of the way I describe that tension that you just mentioned is sort of the tension between managing and leading. And I find myself pushed to manage way more than lead um, just because of the daily triage. COVID, of course, has not helped that at all. It's really exacerbated that tension, I think, more than anything else. You wind up just day to day trying to address the decisions that are right in front of you as opposed to thinking strategically about the institution, how it's going to grow, where we're going to be five, 10, 20 years from now. And I'm probably, you know, because I came up in sort of middle management and have been that for a while, that sort of management role is probably more comfortable for me, actually. And so I have to resist it. I have to resist falling back into that. Like we're going to triage and solve these issues right now and give those things to a really talented leadership team. And I'm lucky that I have one. It's difficult not to be caught in because you see things because of your experience and go, I think I could fix that. Yeah. And you've got to step back and go, okay, I'm going to let them go and fix it because you develop and grow as a person, as you said, as a leader, because you're not managing, you're just leading. You're going, actually, I trust you. Like, you go and do that. It may not be as good as, as, as what I would have done and dealt with it in the same way, but you dealt with it. And actually, how can I grow you? So have you found that bit easy in itself? It's getting easier, right? I'm in my third and a half year, almost my, you know, the conclusion of my fourth year, two of which, you know, we're dealing with COVID. And so, there's an asterisk, I think, by those a little bit. Although I will say, when I think about what we've been able to accomplish in the last two years, in the middle of COVID, we produced a strategic plan, a five-year strategic plan for the school. The school hadn't had one in 10 years. We revised our mission, vision, and core values, which was a whole community, really deep and intensive process that I will let the next head of school do the next time they need to revise it. And then we've launched the largest campaign in the school's history all in the last two years. And so I do think we've done a fair bit of leading you know, a fair bit of where is the school going to go? And I'm lucky in that my ambition is matched by the board's ambition. And we are going to chase, as I say, excellence in every area. Fortunately, we've got the resources that we can do that. And so, yeah, it's getting easier. It's getting easier, especially as I've gotten more comfortable in the community. They know me. There's more trust there. At least there's more understanding, mutual understanding of who we are and what we're going to be just familiarity with people, being able to know people's names, you know, those things really deeply matter. And we've got this massive community, thousands of people, not to mention our alumni, uh, who are a really important part of who we are, as they are with every independent school. Some of that stuff just takes time and being here. And fortunately, we've been able to do that and, and I think make some really good progress. Many educators become educators because of a teacher. You mentioned Brad earlier. 
Was he your kind of drive, your inspiration for getting into it? Or were there other sort of teachers along the way that inspired you? I didn't actually graduate from Darlington. I left after ninth grade. I was there for nine years, but left after ninth grade. My parents got remarried and moved to Virginia and was in a public school in Virginia, but had some great teachers there. There are many who, you know, deeply inspired by their commitment to me. And, and you know, I think the thing that independent schools do well when they work is that there are those moments where someone taps a kid on the shoulder and say, you know, you'd be good at this, or you're really talented in this area, or I'd love to see you do more of that. Because we're structured in a way where, where those kids get noticed. I was really fortunate to have those moments in my life too, where teachers sort of said, you know, you'd be good at that. Why don't you try it? Sort of just expressing some faith in you and, and your sort of latent or nascent talent and ability. And uh, so there were several, but Brad was, I think, you know, he's been the most influential educator in my life, just in terms of the example that he set and the kind of person he is and what he's accomplished in his life. And he's been the model for me, for sure. But there've been many, many, I mean, I've been really fortunate at every school I've worked at, amazing mentors who cared about me and my career and what I was becoming or trying to become and help shape me and help me grow. You know, and, and so I've tried to do that here too, or wherever I've been. I'm a young faculty who have aspirations for leadership. You know, I pride myself on really digging in with them and helping them figure out a pathway to that. You know, my path is not everybody's path. It's worked for me. So I do try to pay that back. But yeah, I would probably highlight Brad as the person. I read a fascinating article about social media in Greenhill Student Newspaper. So I'd like to dig a bit deep into something you said. You suggested that social media divides rather than unites people by design. Why do you believe this? I love it when people like throw my words back at me, Simon. Thank you for that. Our newspaper staff is really amazing. Every time I'm interviewed and I'm interviewed almost weekly, it's like sitting down with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. Like they can sniff out a weakness like nobody's business, but um, just as a caveat or prelude. But, you know, I think what I would do, I, I would amend those comments a little bit to say that social media has the potential to divide us. I don't know that it I mean, I think, you know, if you look at Facebook, uh, Instagram, these platforms that in their initial design, of course, they were designed to bring people together. And so I certainly respect that and, and, and participate in them myself as a citizen. But in terms of a school, they do have the potential to divide. And I see that over and over and over again. And I think the difference between when you and I were students in school and now is the things that it go on between students where there are disagreements or uh, things said that shouldn't be said or hurtful things that, that transpire between people. Back when we were in school, those things eventually went away. They sort of faded into memory. Uh, with social media, they never go away. It's always shocking to me when something comes to us, you know, the sort of quote unquote video evidence that's actually readily apparent now on social media. When somebody brings something like that to us and you dip into underneath the veneer of a student's life into their private lives, there's a lot going on there. A lot of it is not healthy. That's always been the case, but social media really brings that stuff to the surface. And so that was really what I was trying to say about my issues with social media. We use it. We harness those platforms in our classrooms. We, of course, have a, an active presence in social media as a school community. That's how we tell our story most effectively. So I wasn't trying to be a Luddite or, uh, you know, retrograde or backwards in my thinking, but I was really trying to point to you know, the darker side that exists. And I think that comes down to human nature. The platforms just facilitate the ease in which humans can show their very failings 
their worst traits and their best traits, but the worst traits are easier to kind of project themselves. I disagreed, and I think they were designed to bring communities together. Great kind of enabler, leverage to go to, you know, we can connect communities and we can share all the great things because communities thrive on positivity. You know, look at that great thing. You look at your community. There won't be one member of your community that goes, oh, I really enjoyed that negative comment that someone put up there or that the school was kind of shouting about how bad everything is. No one does, right? You get joy and you feel that kind of that rush inside of you. I've actually just had a recent experience with my children and I had to go into school because of something that was shared on social media. And within 10 minutes, we were deciding whether we called the police. And this is something that happens so innocently, but children, you know, these are teenagers, are not equipped, right? And we allow them to go into these little black boxes to have access to anything and anybody, anytime, anywhere. And it's quite, you know, there's, there's a huge trust issue that we kind of trust them. You've got the technology companies who put in their own frameworks to protect them. But we as also, I think, as adults and parents, we're so caught up in ourselves and our own busy lives is that we don't really understand it. So we're almost trying to fix it the event after it's happened and maybe try and understand it. It kind of brought it home again to me because you know I'm a great advocate of social media for telling authentic stories, right? It's the reason people you know, enjoy communities because of the great things you do, but everything has a dark side. Do you think adults should try to limit kids' exposure to controversial topics on social media or is it just impossible to do? I think it's impossible to keep kids from that. My short answer is no. What I think we should do is, as, as you were pointing to in your last bit, is equip them with the tools to be able to navigate those things successfully, right? I think just opening the floodgate with anything, whether it's on social media or any other sort of platform is foolish. And the school, you know, we are a close community. We have a vested interest in making sure that our community, it's part of, to me, it's part of college preparation, right? Which is a, one of our main goals is making sure that our kids can sift through that stuff effectively, you know, as they're becoming adults, as they're becoming more aware of their own beliefs and values. But no, I don't think we should shield kids from controversial topics. Now, of course, as a K-12 school, pre-K through 12 school, we've got four-year-olds and 18-year-olds. And so that's a different, you know, those are different policies and directives and procedures sort of at every stage. Not every, every kid is the same at those different stages. But no, it's not about limiting. And, and I think we trust our kids to access that stuff. But we, where we've got to spend more time and energy is making sure that they're equipped with the tools to be able to handle it. I think what happens more often than not, and maybe in the example that you talk about just a second ago, is that's an example of, I mean, I see it over and over again of kids are just not ready to engage that way. They're just kids being, you know, they're just 14-year-old kids, right? They're trying to develop, they're trying to grow, they're trying to find out how they can find their place in this world. They're driven by peer pressure, by influence all around. And what was astonishing was how quickly it got out of hand. And it was all private. It didn't become private very long. You know this better than I do. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a private conversation. I mean, just it's just there. It gets out. It's Snapchat, whatever it is. The kids, they know how to grab that stuff and to push it out into the world. And again, 90% of the time, it's great. But 10% of the time, it's not. Yeah. And are we doing enough? I suppose it's the education of the teachers and the parents. And you know, I think parents have a difficult time in, in their own right because they're trying to be parents and they're not really cut out to understand the nuances of social, the language that kids use, you know, what they're influenced with in terms of street culture and language and what's appropriate. They don't, they don't see that hidden side of it. They just kind of judge their child and go, okay, they seem happy, right? They're happy. There's nothing going on. Okay, that's fine. 
what about in school? Because we, again, we send our children to your schools to go, but you are really good at educating and understanding children. Do you think we should be doing more to shape the way that our children do embrace and understand social media? And if so, should we be investing more time with the teachers? Because I also feel there's a lack of deep understanding, maybe not enough time assigned to professional development. It's kind of almost like, it feels like it's always cyberbullying or it's online safety. And it's kind of like the kids glaze over and go, here we go, it's another old guy talking about how to be safe online. And the kids are going, forget it. I mean, what are your thoughts? I think most teachers don't even have a superficial knowledge of most of the platforms that kids are using. As a matter of fact, and it's, it makes me sad. Working in schools, you know, there's that old trope that it sort of keeps you young and it does. And it also keeps you kind of cognizant of, of youth culture, right? Because you're, you're in it more than maybe even you are as a parent. TikTok for me was the thing that I was like, okay, I'm old now. Like, I don't understand what this is for. Like, I, my kids have tried to explain it, but I'm like, this is Vine, right? No, I don't know. Well done for knowing Vine, though. I mean, that's it. As far as I'm concerned, if, if you remember Vine, that's it. You, you know social. It's a 10-year-old dead platform, but yeah, that's sort of where my head is. I think the answer to that is, is a simple answer. It's a very complicated solution, right? The simple answer is absolutely yes. Like, we've got to be more aware. Adults have to be more aware of what the kids are doing and understand how these things interact and how they're used. And there's a very limited understanding. And it's something that we as a school and we as sort of aging people are always going to be chasing. We're always going to be behind unless you're the, I don't know, you know, the ed tech specialist or whatever. Other than that, you know, these are things that we hear about and in, in passing. And, you know, it's one more thing that we've got to figure out and learn. At, just like with parents, we owe it to ourselves to be more active in terms of understanding what our kids are using and doing. And right now, I would say in most schools, the answer is we're not. I mean, it's always a paradox because we, you know, it's our duty to ensure that we educate these young men and women to go off and become really upstanding, capable adults in a world that is really changing materially from, from even from now to when they graduate. Technology is at the center of everything that they do. It's almost like we're, we can stick with a, an old educational philosophy, but we're going to prepare you in not the best way. And you're going to go in the world and Whatever bad habits you've learned, you're going to have to pick them up when you're an adult. The real world will sift you. That's why I always have a challenge with schools to go, it's almost like a duty to me. You know, are we fit for purpose and giving them the skills? Because it's not knowledge, right? Knowledge is something they can pick up quite easily on their phones. They need to sift out what's right and wrong and what's fake and what's not fake. But it's more skills focus. I mean, what are your thoughts around more skills focused curriculums? Yeah, you're right. And Sometimes I feel like some of our teachers, maybe not necessarily at Greenhill, but you know, you're going to pry that copy of the Scarlet Letter out of their cold, dead hand. But no, it's much more about skills development. And we've shifted that way too. Even as we begin to talk about collaboration and, and syncing up our curriculum here, it's not as, a, as much about content as it is about, are we you know, across ninth grade English? Are we making sure that we're assessing the same skills in each class? And so we've moved in that direction for sure. And frankly, that's the more interesting conversation, you know, because if a teacher wants to teach, I don't know, as long as I suppose, as long as there's sort of a baseline of some sort of shared material and it meets sort of who we are as a school and it includes diverse voices and that kind of thing, I'm okay with a little bit of variability there. It's really much more to me about, you know, has that group of teachers, have they come together to think about what kind of questions are we asking? How are we asking them? How are we expecting our students to answer them? And what kind of skills are they going to develop in ninth grade English that are going to transfer into 10th? 
talk to the 10th grade teachers about what those kids are supposed to be able to do, not what they know, what are they supposed to be able to do when they come up to 10th grade? And how does that handoff work year to year to year? Those are the interesting conversations. And those are the things where we provide value. You know, trying to jam knowledge into a kid. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure you're the same way. Like, I don't remember 95% of the knowledge that I learned in high school. The skills have transferred, but the knowledge is immaterial now, really, for the most part. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And I suppose the other side is us empowering the students to lead on this because they are the experts now, right? No, no longer, I think, can a teacher stand up in a classroom and go, hey, listen to me, I'm the expert because they are the ones that can drive lots of it. So should we be looking and empowering the students to do more, to lead some of these areas of education and almost educating the faculty because it's a win-win, right? They get to learn how to lead. We're empowering them to say, you know, we really kind of value your opinion because you're in it, but we want to know because we want to become better teachers. So the answer is yes. And, and that's a very scary thing for most teachers, right? Because that is a paradigm shift that a lot of adults in schools are not ready for. I can understand it. You know, I mean, I, I came up in that model where it's sort of like, I'm more experienced than you are at this point. I may not be smarter than you students, but I'm, I'm more experienced than you are. And so you're going you're gonna to sort of lean on my experience, but that's changed immensely. And it's a scary thing for teachers to let go of that control because it, again, it introduces variability into the classroom. You're not sure about the outcomes are going to be when the students are in charge of their learning. And this is not a new idea, right? I mean, this is John Dewey was talking about this hundred years ago. It's difficult to make it work. Now in independent schools like ours, it's much easier because we've got a lot more flexibility to design that in. I have the things I love to teach and uh, I made that joke about Scarlet Letter, but you know, you, you got to pry those essays out of my hand too and to give up more control and pass that on to the students. But we work with really bright, intelligent, motivated, passionate kids. There's no reason not to turn that over to them. You are a massive proponent of what you called a mission-driven life where morality, happiness, and productivity intersect. Do non-religious-based schools have a role in teaching morality? And should they? We do. I'm not sure I would use the word morality because that's such a loaded word and it's going to mean different things to different people. I would say, though, that we do have a role in inculcating a certain value set. You know, we're very clear about, about our core values, excellence, integrity, compassion, and courage. Um, those are the things that we have chosen. They're not the only values we think are important, but those are the core values. I love this question, Simon, and I saw it when you said it, and I really thought hard about it because K-12 non-religious schools have a tough time with this. You know, we don't have a, a moral framework to hang a lot of these values on. And so you could wonder, well, why did you come up with those four core values? Where did they come from? They weren't etched on a stone tablet that our founder brought down from a mountaintop. You know, they evolved over time. And really where I've landed is they're just a reflection of who we are as a community at this point. As I said, we just revised our mission, vision, core values. Those are different from the core values that we had for the past 20 years. And to me, they are, as I said, a reflection of what the school has become. And so where we are now over the past 70 years, this is who we are. These are the things that we think are most important and what we're trying to pass on to kids. We want them to be people who have integrity and compassion and courage, who seek excellence in their own lives. Other schools use other words, right? Even schools like with, we have some excellent schools in the city that are single sex schools. 
they have a very particular mission. And again, they have a framework. They are taking boys, turning them into men, or taking girls and turning them into self-actualized women. You know, they have a clarity about what they do that sometimes gets a little diffuse in a school like ours. And we have to work at it. We have to be very intentional about expressing what our values are and why they are. But I think we're getting better at that, at pointing back to that constantly and trying to infuse that into the classroom, infuse that into the students' activities. We want to see integrity on the athletic field as much as we do in the dining hall or, or in a classroom. But we do have a role in that. It's a partnership with parents. And this is the, if there's an area where that partnership or that, that reciprocity gets strained more than any other, it's, it's around these types of issues. Why are you teaching the values you're teaching in the way you're teaching them? And it's great when the parents agree with how we're doing it. And it's not great when the parents don't agree. And it leads to some good conversations, pretty vigorous conversations. But this is an area where, you know, we can't, as a school like ours, point back to the Episcopal tradition, or we can't point back to the Catholic tradition. We've got to talk about this sort of community agreements. It's a little fuzzier at times. Yeah. And we kind of, a lot of British schools talk about character education. So again, then they're, they're not based, you know, it's the, the morality. I think it's, it's having a moral compass, you know, where you're civic, good, mannered, behaved. There's no bullying. You're kind, critical. There's lots of things that sit around it. And I think that may be the shift. And when I look at the values I want to instill as a father, and my wife wants to instill with our children, for us, it's always, we base it on, well, our educational values is, this, is that the child needs to be happy and confident. If they can work hard and be kind, and then I have a third one, which is don't be a A, asterisk, asterisk. In other words, just stand up and be good, right? But work hard, be kind. Everything else will fit into it. So, yeah, I don't think there's an obligation that having moral compass has to be tied to any, any, any religious foundations of a school. I think it's a real human foundation. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, one of the things that it's not sort of listed specifically as a core value, but one of the things that's a driver for us and has been for decades is our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. This, we are a very diverse school across a lot of different aspects. We're diverse racially and ethnically, religiously, in terms of ideology, in terms of where people are from. We pull from 100 different zip codes. I don't know, is it postal code? What do you say in Britain? What's the, I'm not sure what the term is. We have postcodes because of the, yeah, the postal service, we have postcodes. I'm going to say postcodes from now on, so I'll sound more intelligent. You know, so we pull from this massive geographic area. We bring an immense amount of difference onto our campus and we socioeconomic difference as well. We value that deeply. We also want all those people to feel included. We want them to feel like they are full partners, no matter where they come from in life, uh, no matter what their resources are. That's a distinguisher for us. And that's also sort of where a lot of our decisions come from. They emanate out of, of that sort of core belief as an institution. It is a distinguisher for us in our market, I think, in terms of a decades long commitment to that. All schools have it, are trying to be these kinds of communities, but we've been, and we've had that at the center for a long time. One of the reasons why I came here, one of the things that spoke to me most loudly about the school and what it is. And as you say, it's, you're lucky in, a, in, in some regard because a lot of independent schools aren't. They don't have the pleasure of having such a rich, diverse, culturally inclusive community because they're just where they are and who they recruit. But that's all, it's almost like it's by design and it's wrong. You know, I kind of want schools to reflect what the world looks like. And, you know, you should have access and our children should do, right? They should have access to all of this richness because it benefits them. You say it's by design. Is that just because of A, where you are, that you have access to such a rich, diverse community? 
or have you had to go looking just to ensure that you're making it more inclusive? It depends on what time in the school's history you're talking about, right? I mean, the school was founded in 1950 and Dallas was much less diverse. I think we always had at our center a desire to to be diverse. So for instance, you know, we were founded in some ways as a reaction to the single sex schools in town and also to the religious schools because we welcomed all faiths. And also we were a co-educational school, which was a different way of looking at education than some of the schools were doing. As a matter of fact, I think at that point, most, if not all the private schools in town were single sex. And so we were an alternative in that way. And I think Green Hill has always been an alternative. And I've I like the scrappy upstart school that occupies maybe a unique or different niche in the market. And Green Hill is definitely that. Now, of course, Dallas is, you know, it's a global city. It's incredibly diverse. It's pulling people from all over the world. As we talked about at the beginning, it's growing so rapidly. And Green Hill has really benefited from that. It's sort of success that breeds success that was hard won. We worked really hard. And, and there were some moments in our history where, where this school made some very courageous choices about who we were going to be and how we were going to signal that to the community. I want to give credit to that because you know I'm reaping the benefits. The school now is reaping the benefits of those hard decisions that took place years ago. As we record this and as this goes out, you know we've got spring around the corner. It's unbelievable to think that my first guest on episode one, we were in the middle of COVID and, you know, almost two years later, we're, st- we're still talking about it, still on the agenda. But we're hoping by the end of this summer, things might be better and we can kind of go back to normal. Do you believe that that's going to be the case? I do believe it's going to be the case. And maybe it's just sort of magical thinking on my part right after the last two years. But we've seen, you know, as Omicron has sort of spiked and then receded, we've already begun to, like a lot of schools here in, in town and in the country, have begun to walk back on some of our harsher or more stringent COVID protocols. I'm not an epidemiologist. I found out really early on in COVID how many epidemiologists we had in our community because I was getting a lot of advice from a lot of people about how we ought to proceed. Uh, a lot of armchair epidemiology going on in the Green Hill community, but which is great. But uh, we're, we're fortunate we do have a, a medical advisory committee that helps us make these decisions. We don't make them in isolation. We've relied obviously on a lot of the national organizations like the CDC to help us make those decisions too. But does feel like we're coming out of it. The bigger question really, Simon, is, you know, is this going to eventually move into endemic mode? We know, I think now some form of COVID is going to be with us. It's sort of like, how do we deal with it in the months and years to come? Or can we continue to react in the ways that we have the last two years? My answer would probably be no. I don't think we can. I think we have to treat it a little differently, more like the flu you know, more like an outbreak of a norovirus or something like that, as opposed to campus-wide. Shutdown of civic rights and services. Yeah. Do you think you've come out of this stronger? I mean, I look back, I've enjoyed chatting to schools and I can see this, the robustness, the resilience, the courage that schools have shown, but it's been a long time doing remote teaching or even hybrid teaching. These teachers who sit at the forefront trying to bring these young men and women through I've had a really tough time and it's, you know, I take my hats off to every teacher that has endured being able to carry on the profession they love. We've seen lots of people leave the profession because of it. Do you think we're going to come through stronger because we've had to deal with this in a teaching way? And are there any positive things that came out of teaching methods that you found during COVID that you feel are going to stay? There are positive things that came out of it. I think, and I want to talk about those, I, I think the strain that it's put on our community, like lots of school communities, 
has been immense. And I think people's, the goodwill, the, the patience, the grace and flexibility, as we like to put it here, people have extended that to us by and large over and over and over again for a couple of years now. And I think even our most stalwart uh, folks are, are sort of, those reserves are at an end which I can appreciate. And the same with the teachers. I mean, somebody told me the other day as a head of school said, you know, basically COVID has taken everything that's fun about teaching and just sort of stripped it away. And really what it's left is the work, you know, it's really tough. And you're right. Like people get into this job for the joy of working with young people and COVID protocols have, have just put them at a distance literally. And we can't keep doing that. I mean, schools like Greenhill, they are high touch community-based organizations and COVID protocols are designed to keep people apart. We can't do that for much longer. And that's why you know, no one is more excited about rolling back some of these protocols than I am, because we can get back to doing what we do well. What, we get back to doing what people are investing in in the first place, which is, I want to join a community. I want to be a part of that. And we haven't had visitors on our campus, by and large, for the last two years. You know, we've got to change that. We've got to get back to, uh, to doing what we do best. One of the things that I think we've learned, and this is important, really important, and I've shared this with our faculty on multiple occasions over the last two years, is we have learned that we can make really big, bold moves, really big, bold decisions, make them quickly and be effective. And so I said to our faculty sort of midway through this, it's like, what we've done is proven that we don't have time, the resources, the energy, like the answer to a proposal is that we can't do that right now. That excuse is gone. We've proven that we can when it's the right choice. You know, we launched a new schedule. We moved to semesters. We, as opposed to quarters, we moved to, uh, or trimesters rather, Move to a block schedule, a health and wellness decision, really to kind of slow the pace of the day down in the middle of COVID. Really big decisions. They may sound small to some of your listeners, but for us, those are radical moves. And we did it. You know, we did it in the middle of COVID and very quickly. Same with, you know, as all schools did when they pivoted to the online learning, many of them literally overnight. I mean, it took us three days. We launched an online learning platform in three days. I mean, it's just unbelievable what you can do when the urgency is there. And that's a good lesson. It's a good lesson about the resilience of your community. And the strength as well. I often talked about, you know, COVID and the remote side of teaching becoming the perfect test bed to try things and fail because no one's expecting you to do it right. The risk return was probably this best time because parents and everyone was looking for solutions, for bright ideas to recognize that this is extraordinary times. What can you put in place? So you being able to roll that out was probably the best time you could have done it. If you'd done it in a regular time, non-COVID time, it would have been more difficult because you're up against natural resistance to change. But right during COVID, to me, it's a perfect test kind of pad for trialing this thing. So, you know, it's hats off to you and the other schools who have really tried to do new things at tough times and you've come through it. And, you know, as you say, they are there to stay and they're really good improvements. So, Lee, I know we could probably chat on and you've got a busy day ahead. I'm really grateful for finding time. We can chat for a long time and I've really enjoyed your uh, opinion and thoughts today. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.